The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, if you would, if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 38. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. Uh, so we have our bearings. We're jumping into our Curious series this week. So what is the Curious series? We've done that every couple years since 2016. And uh, what it is is you guys submit questions, and then our time in the Word is going to be focused on answering them. And uh, we do it every couple years because culture changes, issues change, uh, the intersection of theology and, and practice in the midst of the world we're living in, all you know, new issues come up, um, or old issues come up again, right? And so it's good for us to take time like this, and uh, I thought we could maybe play a fun game to kick off this series. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the set of verses, uh, Genesis 38, 1 through 10, and I want you as a reading to see if you can guess the topic of the question that we're answering today. Uh, I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to say that these verses give us the only direct reference to the subject matter we're going to be covering today in all of the scriptures. It's the only direct reference to it, okay? Uh, so let's read Genesis 38, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the verses on the screens, uh, or you don't have an app. If you don't own a Bible, please let us know. We'd be thrilled to give you one, okay? Genesis 38, 1 through 10 Let's go. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. I think you can hear the kids celebrating downstairs now, so just in case you're wondering if there's a soccer game happening somewhere, there's not. That's the second part of the celebration. Amen. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad, I'm glad they're excited. So then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Praise God for his word. It's an interesting set of verses, isn't it? All right. So, I'm not going to have anyone say their guess out loud, okay? So don't panic, all right? I know that's not fun for anyone. But if you have a guess, let me just see you raise your hand. If you think you know what the subject matter is today, raise your hand. Okay, we got one person bold. I may have you say your answer, Jay, because I know you won't be worried about it. Uh, well, how many of you on the live stream are screaming at the screen right now like you're watching Jeopardy? You know what I mean? Like food flying out of your mouth, you think you got the right answer. Uh, that's how I watch Jeopardy. Who's hosting that now? Who is it? They keep trying to find somebody? Oh, okay. Alex Trebek, God rest his soul. Amen. All right. 
So what do you got, Jay, since you're the only one bold enough to even raise your hand? That's really close. Everyone clap for her because she raised her hand and said it out loud. Salute you, ma'am. All right. So, I mean, some of you might be thinking, ooh, I knew that. But if you didn't raise your hand, you don't even get to celebrate at all. All right? Um, here is the question for today. The, you're right. The phrasing is specific, and I, there's a reason. What does the Bible say about birth control in the context of marriage? Okay, so that's what we're going to approach today. So, I would like to say at this juncture... If you have children in the service or listening online, we're going to be working through some content today you may find inappropriate for them. Uh, I have an 8 and 10-year-old, and I would be, just as a reference point, I'd be fine with them being in here. I mean, I know where we're going. Uh, So just giving you that as a reference point. But I also, Natalie and I have had a lot of open conversations about sex and sexuality with both Max and Lucy. So if you haven't yet and you don't want that to happen now, uh, (laughs) then just be advised, okay? Amen. Uh, I want to point out that the person who asked the question, I don't think, could have worded it any better, and I'm going to give you a couple reasons for that. Uh, So I just want to kind of give props to the question asker. So the first reason I'm saying that is is when figuring out how to uh, navigate, okay, this difficult topic... They want to know what the Bible says, what the Bible says, okay? Not what culture or even varying Christian subcultures say, okay? We're going to get into some of that because that's part of how we're going to be able to address this in a holistic way. We'll talk about what some say, but we are really gearing towards and looking at what the Bible says, okay? Um, And and that's going to be my attempt today. That's the overall premise, okay? Okay. Uh, the asker also included the line, in the context of marriage. And I think that's helpful because the Bible clearly teaches that sex is a good gift from God meant to be opened within the safe and committed context of covenant marriage. So that means for Christians then, the birth control conversation should uh, be had in the same context. And I'm saying that with, with the exception of certain medications may be using, being used for other applications, right? And I know that that's sometimes the case, uh, but, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to get that deep into it. But I understand that's a separate issue. We're talking about for the purpose of contraception. That, should, that discussion should be happening within the context of marriage. Uh, that was really wordy. Let me just be really simple and plain. You shouldn't have sex till you're married, okay? Everyone got that? Sweet. That's, that absolutely is what the Bible teaches about it regardless of what you saw on TikTok, okay? Amen. Uh, (laughs) I I also want to just put this out there into the room so that no one's distracted by it. The irony of the fact that we're talking about this on the same day as preschool graduation is not lost on me. Uh, I see that. We can all see that. And okay, all right, on the shelf, because we got some work to do today. All right, so... Uh, We just read about Onan practicing the oldest form of birth control known to man, all right? Um, In in middle school, we had a name for it that rhymed with full and day, Uh, but because we are mature Christian adults, we're going to use the Latin term coitus interruptus to describe it. And you might have thought that was a joke, like, did he just make that up? No, absolutely I didn't. There's a Latin word for it, a Latin phrase for it, 
It's coitus interruptus, okay? If you're going to go Google that to check me, just be careful, okay? Probably stay out of the images and video tab uh, and just read the medical stuff, okay? Amen. I don't want to set you up for temptation there. But that is a real thing. So (laughs) the fact that there's a Latin phrase for it or that we see Onan practicing it, okay, that helps us to understand this is not as exclusively of a modern issue as it may seem, Uh, There have been many different forms of contraception all the way back to ancient times. Uh, As I said, we just read about Onan, uh, but there were also potions and the like. uh, And many of those may have been the equivalent to wives' tales, but the intent was the same. Okay, So this was an issue in the minds of people, something that folks were navigating. Um, Even condoms aren't as exclusively modern as you might think. Uh, You know, the first commercial for them aired in 1991, so some of you might think that's kind of when that became a thing, but uh, they were actually one of the first things that people started producing when Charles Goodyear developed the process for vulcanizing rubber, and that was in the mid-1800s, okay? Uh, That's a little bit interesting. It's like, oh, now we know how to work with rubber. I know what we should make, right? So uh, (laughs) somebody in the board was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Tires, yeah, but there's this other thing. Um, So But that wasn't even the beginning. Uh, They were made of animal skin during the Renaissance. Uh, There were crude attempts as far back as the 1500s in Asia, made out of turtle shells and little parts of animal horns. Uh, So this is not, I'm not trying to be crass in saying all that. What I'm trying to say is we're not the first generation, two, three, or four, thinking about this, okay? Um, And obviously the technology has come a long way, praise the Lord, but uh, we want to really think through the principle the principle behind all of this. So I think a good springboard is for us to start with this question. We've got our main heading, but let's let's have a subheading here. So after we read in Genesis 38 that God took Onan's life after what he did, is the summary, is what we should ascertain from that, uh, that basically birth control or family planning, regardless of method, is a sin. Is that what we see being laid out for us principally in Genesis uh, 38? And almost all of you probably won't like this, but for different reasons. The answer is maybe. Maybe. Okay? That was quieter than I thought. You guys really didn't like that. Well, give me a second. We'll work on it, okay? There have been many who have come to this text, Genesis 38, as a proof text for the position that any kind of family planning is a sin. Uh, Because how many children we have should be up to the Lord. And part of why, so now we're just talking about this text, because this is where a lot of people will come if that's their position, okay? Um, And part of why I chose this question first to deal with of all the questions that came in is because we just got done with the book of Ruth. So what I believe the real issue at hand in Genesis 38 is, it should be fresh in our minds. Okay, so this is a little bit of an obscure uh, idea that we don't think about a whole lot, but we, we were just exposed to it a lot in the book of Ruth. That's the idea of levirate marriage. Okay, so we saw Judah say to Onan, go into your brother's wife, provide offspring for him, okay? If we hadn't just spent eight weeks in the book of Ruth, you might be cocking your head a little bit like a dog hearing a whistle, right? Like, that's kind of weird, but we know because we were traipsing through Ruth for eight weeks, this was 
Uh, actually, by the time of, of Ruth and Boaz, it was codified into law. Okay, that was something that God required to happen. And what does it mean? Well, it means if a, a brother dies and is married and has no children, no offspring to continue the family line, then his brother or the next closest relative then should come into that position and, and redeem that bloodline and, and have children in the name of his dead brother or relative. Okay, This was a way for God to preserve families. It had a lot to do with the way land was distributed at that time. And so I'm not going to reteach all of that because we just did a bunch of it. If you didn't walk with us through the book of Ruth, I would invite you to do that. You'll get a full dealing with what's going on there. But it's, it's very clear that uh, even though it wasn't, so in, in Judah and Onan's time, we don't have the law yet, right? If we're thinking through the timeline. So, but Judah did say and speak to Onan as if this was an obligation. So it was, it was something that was at least customary in the time of Onan and Judah, something that uh, clearly the Lord cared about that wasn't actually codified into law until the time of Moses. Um, in any case, uh, it seems pretty clear that it was not the act of coitus interruptus, but the motive behind it that was displeasing to the Lord. It says clearly, Onan knew these wouldn't be his offspring. He did not have enough love for his brother or his brother's widow or for the Lord to sacrificially, and, and that would be, right, to raise up children uh, under someone else's name and to, make, to protect and preserve their inheritance, that's a great sacrifice. But, I mean, that's a, a peek at the beginning of the summary of the law, which is to lay down our lives in love and service to others, right? So, uh, exemplified best in Jesus. So, it, it was not the act itself, uh, it was the motive behind it. And that's why the answer to whether or not birth control is a sin is maybe. Because it comes down to the motives. And we often get ourselves real tangled up in debates about what is and isn't sin because we forget the gospel principle that we get a pretty good glimpse at in 1 Samuel. So Samuel, uh, Saul has been a bad king. Uh, God calls Samuel to anoint the next king and sends him to Jesse's house, okay? And this is uh, Jesse, the, the father of David, if you're not familiar with the story. But this this piece right here, it, it shows us why sometimes we get tangled up in discussions and debates that I don't think the Lord would, okay? So Samuel's coming up to Jesse's house. I'm going to read this for you, and we'll draw the principle out. When Samuel enters the house of Jesse to anoint a king from among his sons, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before him. Eliab being the tall, strong, older son of Jesse, so, that, so Samuel walks in, all the boys are lined up, he looks at Eliab, probably maybe the handsomest, tallest, strongest, and because of the way humans tend to gauge and look at things, he's like, surely, that's the Lord's anointed. But what does the Lord say? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And that really helps us kind of zero in to where we should be focused in this and many other conversations around what is and isn't sin. Jesus came later and not only taught us, but showed us that God is not interested in rule keeping so that we can feel 
righteous. The Lord doesn't just care about what we do, but why we do it. And sometimes it is not what we do, but why we do it that determines whether it is a sin or not. That's an important principle to remember. It'll have us looking in the right place, okay? I believe this is the case when it comes to what the Bible says about birth control. There is no prohibition in the scriptures about using natural, medicinal, or physical methods to limit the number of children in a family. And remember, we're focused, the home base is always in this discussion, what does the Bible say about birth control in the context of marriage? I'm answering that for you right now. There's no prohibition in the scriptures about using natural, medicinal, or physical methods to limit the number of children in a family. However, however, if any of those methods are being used out of selfish or ungodly motives, then it very well could be sinful. Amen? Amen. Okay. So I've, I've now presented an answer to you about what many would consider the strongest argument uh, and, and the closest thing to a birth control prohibition in the scriptures, that being Genesis 38 with Onan, okay? We've summarized our position that the idea of contraception itself is not sinful, but the motives can be, all right? I think it's important to say here and, and just acknowledge that there, there are many who uh, have concerns about certain uh, medicinal birth control methods and, and the possibility of not allowing a fertilized ovum to attach to the uterine wall. I just want to address that quickly. Again, our realm is not so much the medical specifics here. It has a lot more to do with the principles from a godly perspective, but I realize that could be a sticking point, and you may think I'm missing it. I just want you to see that um, I'm not, okay? So on that issue specifically, in all that I read, it seems there is not consensus among experts, and this, this includes, and these are the ones I really was paying attention to, Experts who care about and consider life to begin at conception. Okay, so the, the common uh, designation you might put on that would be pro-life. Even those, ex- there's experts that they are not sure how likely or even possible that scenario is. Okay, so I, I know that some of you, I realize you may have read or heard things that sound very definitive on that matter. And of course, if you feel that it, it's a risk you're not willing to take, then using other forms of birth control like ovulation timing or condoms based on that conviction is an honorable alternative, okay? So uh, we just want to make sure we're not projecting our convictions or understanding of, of science onto other people and trying to control their conscience, okay? Because that's a very unbiblical thing to do. And something we seem to be getting better at as a society, uh, dictating to others what their conscience should be feeling or thinking. Um, Let's stay out of that minefield and keep moving on this subject because I've got enough minds to step on in this one. Amen? Uh, So the account of Onan and the conclusions drawn from that, um, they're not the only concern people have. So I want to look at this from a few more angles. Uh, the, the, The Genesis 38 account is not the only place that leads people to an understanding that any kind of, of family planning or contraception would be sinful. Okay, there's other, um, shall we say, arguments and or points to consider. So the first thing I'm going to give you is, is this question. You'll hear people pose this sometimes. Isn't contraception of any kind taking into our own hands something that should be for God to decide? Isn't 
any kind of contraception, taking into our own hands something that should be for God to decide. I would submit to you that this is another reason why our recent journey through the book of Ruth, with its illuminating elements about the sovereignty of God, should be helpful for us. It should help us think through this. And I want to stop for a moment, and I want to give honor to anybody who who cares so deeply about God's will for their life that they wouldn't want to do anything that might hinder it. And, and, and as we said in recent weeks, our choices do matter. God is sovereign and our choices do matter, right? We worked on that quite a bit uh, towards the end of the book of Ruth. And uh, that's a big subject that I can't really get in and play with today. So, um, but those principles should help us to think through this specific application of it, right? Um, we also saw that even in cases where we choose disobedience to God, his timeless omniscience and omnipotence, okay, those are are big theology words, his omniscience is the fact that he's all-knowing. And I'm putting both of these under timeless on purpose. It's important. God is timelessly, exists outside of time, he's omniscient, all-knowing. Alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, right? He's never surprised by anything. He sees the whole timeline laid out from beginning to end. So he's all-knowing, timeless, and omnipotent. That means all-powerful. And both of those things, neither, in neither way is he restricted by time. So what does that mean? It means he can work all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He can make sure his perfect plan will not be derailed. He's so powerful that you can make a dumb choice and it ain't going to mess up what he's got going on. Man, everyone should have said amen to that. Thank you, Jesus, that that's true, right? Whew, I'm just thinking about me. I didn't even start thinking about all of you on that. Good Lord, it's even better. Start thinking about some of you knuckleheads, amen. All right. I was, I was pointed at myself to begin with. Oh, that's where it belongs. Um, now, in me saying that, I want to make sure I'm clear. I don't believe birth control is disobedience to God, but that same principle applies. And and I'm going (laughs) to lay that out even more plainly, okay? I want to say this real clear, and I promise you, I'm not trying to be sassy, even if it sounds like it, okay? Can you trust me on that? I'm not trying to be sassy. It might sound like it, but I'm not. There is no form of birth control that is going to stop you from having children if the Lord wants you to have children. Okay? Now, if you don't believe that, I would encourage you, once you step through the pearly gates, sign up for an appointment with Mary, the mother of Jesus. <laughs> okay? You come up there with your belief of, well, if I don't want to have a baby, then I don't have to because I can do this, that, or the other thing. Just talk to Mary about it. See what she has to say. It may help your perspective. Okay? And you might be thinking, well, that's, that's terrible theology, Pastor Vince. Well, okay. You might be thinking, that's, that's a one-time deal. What does that have to do with anything? You went straight to the Immaculate Conception, man. Well, what, what the heck? Well, okay, then if you don't think Mary would be a good person to talk to about it, then I would encourage you to go talk to Sarah, who was 90 when she conceived Rebecca. Go talk to Rachel, Leah, Hannah, Elizabeth, or any of the other women who were barren until God opened their womb. So you can get on any of those lists. Mary will probably have a lot of appointments. You'll have to wait deep into eternity to get to talk to her. 
Some of these lesser known names, you may get an appointment in a couple thousand years. So, you know, just, yeah, talk to their secretary, okay? Amen. Uh, I personally know, I'll tell you their name. I personally know of people with vasectomies or tubal litigations, or tubal ligations, okay? What is that? Getting your tubes tied, that's the street level vernacular. I, know, I personally know people with those situations uh, having been done that became pregnant. So along with that, and, and all of the examples I just gave you from the Bible, I'm going to go with the idea that God has a trump card in the pro- procreation game, okay? <laughs> so if he says, yup, then it's yup, all right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how that's going to go. And, and again, I'm not trying to be sassy because I, I, I genuinely honor those who have a sensitive enough conscience. They don't, they don't want to do anything that's going to possibly, if that's something that belongs in the Lord's hands, they don't, they don't want to get in and mess with that. They want to just trust the Lord about it. And I'm with you on that, 100%. That's an honorable way to look at things. But that, that could overdevelop into uh, thinking that, that what we're talking about today with contraception, that that means to plan a family or to engage in stewardship in the way you think about that would be sinful. And it's not. And, and the worst iteration of that is not people making choices about their own family through those convictions. If that's as far as it reaches, then that's fine. It's when people start to get very self-righteous about the way other people uh, do this or get judgmental about the way other people do this. That can end you up, that's how you end up in sin in your heart, one primary way when it comes to this subject, okay? Um, so don't be a birth control Pharisee. Amen. Um, so the... <laughs> the, the second kind of offshoot, secondary question is, you'll hear people say this, well, if children are a blessing from the Lord, why would you ever want to limit the amount in your family? If children are a blessing from the Lord, the Bible teaches that, we believe that here, why would you ever want to limit the amount in your family? People will often quote this verse when they're expressing this idea. Uh, it's Psalm 127, starting in verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. All right, so, and this is also an understandable way of thinking. And I want to say this plainly. If this is your conviction, it is perfectly acceptable to live it out. Perfectly acceptable. What would not be acceptable is judging others harshly if they don't share it. That would not be acceptable. And this is true in reverse as well. There are many today who scoff at those with large families. And this is also an overreach and a prideful approach. It should be avoided, okay? Um, Continuing in this idea of if, if children are a gift from the Lord, well, why would we ever limit the number? Just because we're told something is a gift from the Lord doesn't mean his will is for all of us to have that thing in unlimited numbers. Okay, that's pretty easy to understand. Uh, Proverbs 18.22 tells us that if, uh, if a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. Okay? But we normally stop at one of those, right? A wife. Now, some of you asked about polygamy. We'll get to that this round of Curious. So if, if you're out here going... Yeah, well, I don't buy that. We'll get to you in a minute. But here's what I'm saying. The argument is, go to Psalms. Maybe I wasn't clear. 
Go to Psalms, children are a blessing from the Lord. There are people that will say, well, if that's the case, children are a gift from the Lord, talks about a full quiver of arrows, then why would you ever limit the amount of children in your family or ever want to? And what I'm saying is, to make it real plain, because God says in his word something is a gift or a blessing from him doesn't mean it's his will for everyone to have an unlimited amount, i.e., a wife is a blessing from the Lord. A wife is a good thing from the Lord, okay? Uh, I also recently... In thinking about this, I realized, I sat and thought about it for a minute, there is no equivalent verse about finding a husband being a blessing from the Lord. (laughs) And it got me wondering, uh, (laughs) it got me wondering, I'm just going to say that. So I've I've been been in some deep prayer about that. I don't know what to do with it, to be quite honest. Uh, (laughs) Amen. Ladies, if you have a good godly husband and you're thankful, say amen real loud. Help him feel better about that. Okay. <laughs> oh, Lord. It's true, though. I couldn't find one, man. I had, had the Greek lexicon. I was like, maybe it's in Greek. No, it wasn't there either. Not in Hebrew, nowhere. I don't know. You ladies are covered, though. You guys are a blessing. You're, amen. I believe it. Um, another thing for us to think about... There's, there's some cultural context to consider when we look at how the Bible talks about children. Uh, in agricultural society, societies in particular, so you'll see even in particular in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, if, you're, if you're in an agricultural society, children are they're the future workforce. Um, and it's just about the only plan they had for taking care of parents when they were older. Okay? There was no SSI uh, in, in ancient Israel. Okay, It was... Your kids took over the family land and worked, and then, you know, you sat there and told them what to do, you know, and they took care of you. I mean, that was the retirement plan was your kids. So that's different. We see that changing even by the time we get to more urban settings within the realm of the New Testament, right? People are starting to move into cities. Large groups of people are starting to move out of just an agricultural uh, kind of subsistence existence, okay? I wasn't trying to rhyme there. I just, you know, you guys know. I'm a rapper on the side, so it just comes out sometimes. Uh, but what that means is, okay, that context, that cultural context with some of these things were written, it affects the tone and the emphasis, okay, um, on how we see this whole idea of children discussed in the Bible, and, and particularly, as I said, in the Old Testament. Um, also in this discussion, people, they'll, they'll kind of reach back, they'll hearken back to the first command given to Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so they'll, they'll reach to that idea that one of the first things God said to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. And they'll say, okay, so that means forward moving forever. Uh, you, should, you should never do anything to limit that, that process. Um, but what sometimes they forget is that we were also supposed to, in the, same, in the same paragraph, in the same sentence, God also told them to subdue the earth and to be good stewards of it. So they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply, but they also had a job as it pertained to stewarding what God had created, okay? And that uh, needs to be considered as well. When Jesus came on the scene, I would argue that he shifted the emphasis, for those who follow God, he shifted the emphasis from making physical descendants in order to fill the earth, because you can also understand with Adam and Eve, that would be high on the priority list being fruitful and multiplying since we're 
starting with two people, and we need to fill the earth with people, right, to God's glory. So that, that, would, that was real important there at the garden uh, juncture of time, okay? So, but I, I, would, I would submit to you that, um, that Jesus shifted the emphasis from making physical descendants in order to fill the earth to making disciples to fill the kingdom, okay? When Jesus gave his summary statement to his disciples before he ascended, he did not include the statement, be fruitful and multiply. He did tell them to go into all the earth and make disciples, to go into all the world and preach the good news of the gospel, make disciples, teach people how to obey Jesus, baptize them, and train them to then go and make more disciples. So there's still a a filling and multiplying mandate upon the people of God. I think it, the, the emphasis of it was shifted with the ministry of Jesus and what he revealed to us about where we were at in kind of the unfolding of redemptive history at that point, okay? Uh, Jesus taught that God doesn't distribute things evenly to all people. And in fact, expects us to humbly steward what he has entrusted to us instead of being overly concerned with what he has entrusted to others. You might say, well, where did he say that? I would call your attention to uh, the parable of the talents and others like it, right? The master gave one person one talent, gave one person five and one person 10. He expected them to do with the talents that he gave them what was prudent and would be good stewardship. They were expected to steward what they were entrusted, not uh, lament that, Either you were given 10 talents, and that seems unfair, I have more responsibility, or I was given one talent, what does that say about me? That's not in view, that's not in focus. But there is this idea that God gives some one, some five, some 10, okay? I think that principle also could apply here to the idea of children. Many of you aren't interested in this topic because you struggle with judging others and what they do when it comes to children. Many of you, just want to know how to faithfully navigate this in your own family. And I know that. I'm watching out for, we're talking about the potential uh, to get, get judgy and hateful and self-righteous about this uh, with other people. But I know some of you, that's not really on the radar. You just really genuinely want to honor Jesus with how you conduct uh, running your family and how you make decisions around this. And, and I honor you for that, that we should have that kind of conviction about it. It's it's not a flippant thing. It's a major thing. A big part of what you do with the few years you're given on this earth is to decide whether God wants you to marry, whether God wants you to have children, and then what you do with that, right? It's huge. It's a huge part of the experience of living as, as humanity. So big question, important question. Um, but for those of you that are in that spot, you just really genuinely desperately care about obeying God when it comes to this, I, I would submit this to you. I, I would submit to you that you think of it primarily in terms of stewardship and the kingdom. I believe that's what the Bible would lead us to. Uh, some people may have the resources of, of time, talent, and treasure to raise many children as future followers of Jesus, uh, and that may be how he wants them to do it. And, and I'm just saying... Um, I said that they have an abundance of the resources of time, talent, and treasure. Are there any parents in here that will be honest and say, raising children takes copious amounts of time, talent, and treasure? <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> 
but beautiful, of course. Um, some may have equal resources to that person, but the Lord wants them to also focus on other aspects of gospel and kingdom ministry. So they need to split those resources between those things. Let me make sure I'm saying this plainly. And I think I have multiple times, but I want to make sure we don't miss it. Having children in a family system and loving them and teaching them how to obey Jesus is one of the most important things anybody on this planet will ever do. Absolutely. That, that is gospel ministry of the first order. Okay? Highest level of importance. But that doesn't mean that everybody's supposed to have in their family system as many children as possible and, and, and have an, an inordinate focus on only that element of gospel and kingdom ministry because there's other families that God may have a different call in their life. Think of missionaries, for example. Okay, There may be missionaries um, called to other countries and God wants them to have few children or no children or he has a specific call for that husband and wife to accomplish. Okay, We shouldn't look down on that or, or think that... Um, somehow they're unspiritual or automatically selfish as a result. And it's not just missionaries to foreign countries. There's a whole lot of work to do for spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ right here on the soil of America. Okay, so that's, that, that this idea, I'm just, I used missionaries as an example, but it could be anything. It could be anything that God has called people to do. We've all got so much time, talent, and treasure, and we've got to figure out how God would have us divide those resources for the furthering of his kingdom, for the fame of his name, and the glory of Christ and his gospel. Okay? Stewardship in the kingdom are primarily in view uh, as we discuss this, this issue. Uh, I, I truly believe there are some married couples who God leads to produce no biological children of their own so that they can focus all their resources and energy on the specific mission he gives them, whatever that may be. I fully believe that's the case. There are some of you that may disagree with that. or Some of you probably heard fairly well-known teachers disagree with that. I mean, if you can get them to, tell them to call me. I'd like to talk to them about it. <laughs> you know, amen. You can sit down and chat. Overall, overall, we should agree with God when he says children are a blessing. And we should be open to whatever size family he would give us. But there is nothing in the Bible that teaches. We cannot or should not prayerfully and carefully consider the stewardship aspects of family size. Okay? And this means, looping back around, natural, medicinal, or physical forms of birth control are not disobedience to God. I feel comfortable with that statement, saying it real plain. Okay? God loves big families and little families, and he wants all of us to view every part of our lives through the lens of the mission he's given us, to make disciples and teach them to follow Jesus faithfully. Amen. And as we've already said, that, that kind of gospel work, it happens in a huge way as parents raise children to know and love Jesus, but that is not the only way it happens. Regardless of how many children are in each family, we all should value the way Jesus did children. We should all value kids the way Jesus did. He went so far as to say that their faith is an example of how we are to come to him properly. You might be unfamiliar with that. Let me read it to you. Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of God? 
Okay? So that's a standard adult conversation. We get all wrapped up on dumb stuff. They come to Jesus. They come to Jesus and ask him who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Right? Anyways, how does Jesus deal with that? He called a child to himself and set him among them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever will humble himself like this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? I'm going to talk about it for just a second, but boy, at the very minimum, when Jesus says, if you don't get like this, you won't enter the kingdom, my attention is, is I'm keyed in. He's got my attention. What? Okay, master, what does that mean? That's important, clearly. That's not the only place. Mark 10 Starting in verse 13, they were bringing children to him so that he would touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. It means he was ticked off. And he said to them, allow the children to come to me. Do not forbid them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now, I could, we could probably put a whole series together on what Jesus is talking about here the depth, and, and how many facets there are to what he means by childlike faith. But I'm wrapping up the sermon here. Uh, for those of you that are sweating it, we're almost done. Uh, I'm going to take just a second to, to say this about it. At the, at the bare minimum, childlike faith, childlike faith is a faith that is not afraid to declare and understand openly and humbly their dependence upon God. Children are dependent. Children have not yet been convinced they can do it all themselves. And this is a key in the way we approach Jesus. We understand that the gospel has two parts. The first part of the gospel is an understanding of this very basic premise. I'm a sinner, and I need a savior, and I can't save myself. That I have broken relationship with God because of my sin. And that the only way that can be fixed, the one that broke it can't fix it. It's got to be the one the only one, the way, the truth, the life. Got to be Jesus who lived a perfect life that I couldn't and then died the death that I should have in my place for my sins. It's trusting that what God has said, even though it doesn't make sense, it doesn't even logically compute that I can transgress against a perfect and holy God. Jesus can do none of that, be perfect in obedience and in all things, that he can lay his life down. And what God says to me is, I want you to trust in what he did. I'm going to give you all that belongs to him as a result of you simply trusting and believing me in faith. That takes childlike faith. I have to, at a point, say, I don't really understand how that works, but I'm so glad you're saying it. Childlike faith is a prerequisite for the kingdom. And so at the at the bare minimum, what we cannot come out of the other side of this conversation on, because of the position that we took here, I'm afraid we could come out of this side, on the other side, with a, a, an underdeveloped appreciation for the gift that children are. Far be it from us to ever fall into that position. May we always understand children's place in the kingdom, their importance, and may we look to them. Cherishing children is one of the most important ways to keep reminding ourselves of and to keep our focus on the gospel. And so the next time you're feeling lost, you're feeling shook in your faith, I'd encourage you, figure out a way 
to set your eyes on some kids and learn from them. Humble yourself, because Jesus said the kingdom belongs to them. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you so much for this series. I thank you for the opportunity that it gives us to dig into your word and to talk about things that maybe wouldn't easily or naturally come up uh, as we just work through books of the Bible. It's a chance for us to really engage with some of the things, the questions that are burning in people's hearts that, that may be a stumbling block for them or something that, that causes them angst and concern. And I just thank you for the chance for us to get in and to look to your word uh, for answers around these things. And I thank you, Lord, for the instruction from your word on this subject today. I thank you for the question asker, uh, for their skill in asking the question. And I also thank you, God, for the chance we had to, to think through these things together. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that there's a whole lot in life, uh, maybe more than we'd like to admit, where when it comes down to whether or not we're in sin, the, the answer comes down to maybe, and it has little to do with the act itself, but a lot to do with what's going on in our heart. Help us, please, 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 please keep that in mind as we're navigating through the season we're in. Uh, as a people, as your church, uh, moving in and amongst our culture at this time. Help us be humble, God. Help us be humble ambassadors of the hope and grace and truth that comes in your gospel alone. And help us, Lord, to, uh, to see ourselves in the proper light, to understand that we are your children, and to proceed accordingly. I pray for every family, Lord, that's a part of Love City Church that is maybe joining us uh, as visitors today or through the live stream, everybody that's within the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray for every one of those families, Lord, because I know you love families and you established families as a primary way for you to accomplish your will in the earth. So please help us to never, ever disdain or to look down upon or undervalue what you're doing in and through families and help us be families that reflect your goodness and glory and mercy and majesty to the world. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.